This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In long-term relationships, partners often find that they're having the same fights over and over again. The fights are often triggered by something really small, but then they have this way of escalating and turning into bigger conflicts that are wildly unproductive. As one example, there is often one partner in a relationship who's typically really punctual, while the other is often running late. Personally, I'm the one who tends to run a little bit late. And when this happens, it sometimes triggers a fight. He'll say, you always do this, and not acknowledge that there are plenty of times that I've been on time or even early. And then I'll say, relax, it's only 10 minutes, it's not that big of a deal. And then the next thing you know, we're completely talking past each other, and it only ends up making us later. This is an example of a relationship pattern known as a negative cycle. One person feels hurt, they say something critical, then the other feels hurt, and it just escalates, and nobody feels good in the end. So let's talk about negative cycles. I have a two-part series for you. In today's show, we're going to delve into why negative cycles happen, how we create these patterns in the first place, and how you can start to recognize them. And in the next episode, we're going to build on this and talk about how to break negative cycles and resolve them positively. I am joined today by Julie Minano, a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in emotionally focused therapy for couples. She also provides insight and advice for couples at The Secure Relationship on Instagram with over 1 million followers. She founded and runs the Bozeman Therapy and Counseling Clinic and The Secure Relationship Coaching. She lives in Montana with her husband and six children. This is going to be a fascinating and really important conversation that will give you some helpful relationship tools. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Julie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to be talking about your new book, Secure Love, and we're going to have a two-part conversation about it. In this episode, we're going to discuss negative cycles in relationships and where they come from. And in the next episode, we're going to do a deep dive into how to break those cycles. So as a starting point, let me ask you to define what a negative cycle is in a relationship. So in other words, why do so many couples find themselves having the same fight over and over again? Yeah. So what happens is typically the negative cycle will start when there's either some sort of concern about a decision that needs to be made, or I'm needing more time together, something about the relationship or something that just one partner or the other has a concern about, right? So already, you know, they kind of might go into it knowing this is a sensitive topic or this hasn't gone well in the past. So one partner might kind of lead into that topic coming from like an emotionally 
dysregulated place where they're already kind of prepared, right? And even if they don't, let's say the other partner just from what the first partner brings up or the way that they bring it up, they get triggered even if the first partner delivers it in the most, you know, the healthiest way possible. And so what happens is, is this one trigger will kind of launch this pattern that tends to be pretty repetitive, not only from, you know, each couple's argument, but from couple to couple, they tend to be, if you really kind of break these down and look at what's going on underneath the surface, um, most couples are kind of having the same fights, right? And so then they don't know how to manage these triggers. That's really what's going on. And so they each start going into these really kind of protective places where they're no longer connected. And now they're just trying to kind of desperately feel safe, get their attachment needs met. And so they just start triggering each other left and right. Typically, it will start, one partner will bring up a concern. The other partner, their nervous system will go, alarm bell, you know, some unmet attachment need will flare up that they're not aware of in the moment. Like, oh my gosh, I don't feel appreciated right now. Or I feel like I'm being attacked right now. I don't feel seen. I don't feel validated. I don't feel understood. And their alarm bell and their nervous system will go off. And so what happens is then they'll get really maybe defensive, right? So now the first partner who's brought up this concern will now feel invalidated. Like, I'm not being heard. I'm not being validated for my concern. Now their alarm bell goes off. What does that mean if I'm not being validated? What's the relationship going to be like if I never have space to bring up concerns? You know, all these fears start welling up, all these self-beliefs, like nobody is ever going to hear me. I never got heard growing up. And here I am again in a situation where I'm not being heard. Most of this stuff is happening subconsciously, right? So then now the first partner starts protesting more. They get heated. They're like, you never listened to me. You know, and then now the second partner feels more attacked or whatever's going on with them underneath the surface. And now they might try to get really reasonable and rational. Calm down. Here's the facts. Here's why you're seeing it all wrong. Right. And what now what happens to the first partner? They feel even more unheard and invalidated. So now they come back with either protest or facts and details of their own. A lot of times, you know, this can go on a few rounds and then the, the receiving partner might just end up kind of shutting it down. And that can either look like just completely disengaging. I'm not going to do this. I'm not talking about this right now. We're just appeasing the first partner, you know, kind of saying things that the first partner wants to hear, even though it might not really come from their heart. Like, fine, I'll, I'll do what you want. Fine. I'll stop spending so much money. Fine. You know, we can spend more time together, you know, and so Really, what's happening and the reason it keeps happening over and over is because, one, the topic doesn't get resolved when you go into negative cycles, right? The communication isn't safe. It's not collaborative. And so it just blocks any kind of real resolution. So the real problem just gets kind of shoved under the rug. Problems don't go away. They're going to keep crying to be heard, crying to be resolved. And so it will come up again if they're not really able to meet each other in this communication and actually work through it. The second thing that happens is they're harming each other's attachment safety in the relationship. They're sending these messages, whether they're true or not. A lot of times they're not true. Your needs don't matter to me. You're not worth even having this conversation. I don't appreciate what you get right. All, I'm, all you're seeing is what I'm getting wrong. I'm not here to validate and help you with your big emotions. You're on your own with that. 
And so those are attachment wounds that are now building up that are also not getting resolved. And so what happens is in these negative cycles, couples are fighting for two things. On the surface, they're fighting for whatever it is they brought up. You leave your dishes out. I need help with the kids. You know, we're spending too much money. I have a problem with your mom and some things she said to me. You know, underneath the surface, they're also fighting for their relationship and slash attachment needs to be met. And they just get, it gets so convoluted. Nobody knows what to do. You know, so many of us grew up in homes where we didn't have enough emotional support, maybe not the worst environments, but just not kind of the right kind of emotional support. We didn't learn conflict resolution skills. We didn't have that modeled to us. We didn't learn about our deeper feelings that are going on underneath the surface of these issues. And so couples, they just don't know what to do. You know, nobody's really going into these things going, oh, I I just want to hurt my partner and not hear them or, you know, leave them feeling like their needs don't matter and appreciated. And they simply don't know what to do differently. And when you don't know what to do differently, what are you going to do? You're going to rely on what's been wired into you from a very young age. Yeah. You know, everything you said there is so relatable because I think almost all of us who are in relationships find ourselves having the same fight over and over again. And it starts with what seems like a little thing, but it's about something much deeper. And we end up getting lost in the details, fighting about that little minor thing about, you know, dishes not being put away or laundry or something else like that. And it just spirals out of control very, very, very quickly. So, you know, these are things that happen. And, you know, a lot of what you said there resonated with me. And in particular, one thing that stood out was when you said, when you tell your partner to just calm down, you know, during one of these situations, it doesn't tend to be a very productive thing. And, you know, I was reading an article in the New York Times the other day about things you should and shouldn't say to your partner during a conflict and telling them to calm down is one of the things that they said you shouldn't say. You're so right that it comes across as being very dismissive because you're essentially telling your partner that their feelings aren't valid, that they're overreacting, they just need to calm down. And then that escalates further. And I think when people say things like, calm down or you're overreacting. I think it's coming from a place of they're trying to de-escalate, but unintentionally they're escalating the conflict in relationships. When someone says calm down, what they're really saying is I need to calm down. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, I think you're also so right when you say that we're not taught how to communicate about these things or how to manage conflict resolution and all of those other things. So that's where it's really important to have therapists and other professionals who can teach us about these things and why it's important to have books like the one that you wrote that can really clearly describe these things for readers. Now, in a new relationship, people don't have negative cycles, right? Partners usually get along well in the beginning, but over time, things can start to feel different. So where do negative cycles originate? You know, how do they start and then perpetuate over time in relationships? Well, negative cycles, you know, on some level really start from the get-go. When one or both partners isn't in touch with their emotions and their triggers as they show up in moments, they kind of might have a vague sense of them being there, but they don't really know how to kind of tap in, recognize, oh, this is one of those moments when I'm, something feels kind of threatening. Then that's going to create negative cycles. Um, a lot of times just from the get-go, it could look like, we first meet each other or we're having coffee and one partner sees the other one kind of look over their shoulder. Maybe they saw someone they know 
across the room, but we're not putting words to this. It's just kind of a passing thing. And the first partner's says alarm bell and their, you know, nervous system says alarm bell. Who are they looking at? Why aren't they looking at me? Are they not into me? Right. And so then they might respond to that, that fear just sort of rotely, you know, subconsciously with some kind of get their attention back on me kind of behavior. The second partner might pick that up subtly and then they adjust their behavior to that. And, and the next thing, you know, nobody's really tapping into their authentic feelings and, you know, talking about these little tiny triggers. And now we're just kind of reacting to them. And it can start these patterns, right? But typically, it's not really a problem, or it's not a noticeable problem until the first conflict. And then the first time that they don't see eye to eye, or someone's, you know, their needs are different. um, And they just, again, don't have the skills to navigate that difference. And we all have these differences, you know, two people come together, there's going to be differences in how to go about doing things. So then what happens is, is they don't know how to navigate the conflict. So again, what we do is we go into these protective places where we get in this negative cycle. And now, you know, before this point, there hasn't really been a reason not to emotionally trust. It's been great. For the most part, we feel good. We feel seen. We feel accepted. We feel connected. We feel that they want to spend time with us. And now we get into this negative cycle and all of a sudden the attachment threats start to show up. And now, you know, even when, you know, typically after the first one, a couple can quickly make up, right? Okay, we're just, that's never going to happen again. You know, we just need to learn to communicate better. And they quickly make up and they kind of get that safety back. But then they didn't, they haven't really developed the skills, you know, little subtle wound, right? And then so the next time they get into a negative cycle, Now they're kind of dealing with the mistrust that they've already built from the first one and they don't know what to do again. They go a little bit further apart, might take a bit longer to make up, you know? And so over time, the lack of safety, the lack of feeling like, Hey, I can reach to you when I need you and you're going to be there to respond to me, or you're going to reach for me in a way that, you know, doesn't feel like an attack or I'm just seen as a bad person. And we can kind of reach and respond to each other pretty flexibly that just starts to erode the emotional safety. And we start kind of to varying degrees, depending on the couple walking around the relationship with a little bit of angst, like, you know, something's going to go wrong. And and we might just shove that angst away and try to keep it out of awareness until it flares up, or we might kind of always have some anxiety and always sort of be reacting to the anxiety that we're carrying, be a little hypervigilant. You know, I like to look at it as climate versus weather. So couples who, have figured all of this out. The overall climate is we feel pretty safe with each other, right? We feel like we're connected. We feel like our attachment needs are met. We can reach to each other when needed and our needs matter to each other. Uh, But they might have ruptures where they get into a fight or an argument or some of those attachment needs go on offline. And this moment I feel really misunderstood, but they're able to repair that, to really check in with themselves figure out what they're needing, talk to each other about that, and get back to their climate. Couples who start to have lots of negative cycles where they're not repairing these ruptures along the way, the overall climate starts to become one of insecure attachment. They can't get back to anything that feels really good overall. And and there's everything in between. I'm kind of talking about two different extremes. I mean, you can have a relationship with two people with insecure attachment that can hum along in an okay way. 
right? I mean, we all know, oh, my grandparents were married for 80 years, you know, even though every time you went over there, they got into a bickering match and, you know, someone wasn't getting their needs met, but they're still together and somehow they've managed to kind of survive and they love each other, right? But there's always something better. There's always something better that we can grow toward. Yeah. You said a lot of important things there. And I think one of them is that, you know, these negative cycles can start very early on in a relationship, including from the very first meeting, because you're starting to establish a pattern of interaction with your partner. You're each responding to one another, and then things build and grow from there. And when people have that first conflict, they'll often find a way to resolve it. They might not deal with the underlying issue, but they might feel like they came to a resolution and then they keep going on in the relationship. But that creates a pattern where the negative cycle emerges, they find a temporary resolution for it, but then the cycle just perpetuates over and over again, right? So this is kind of how we get stuck in these cycles. So which attachment styles are most likely to lead to negative cycles? And why do we often end up in relationships or why are we drawn to or attracted to people who don't meet our attachment needs? You know, it seems counterintuitive that we might be drawn to somebody who's inevitably going to hurt us or isn't able to fulfill our needs. So which attachment styles tend to lead to more of those negative cycles? Yeah, great question. So we have four different attachment styles. Um, only one of them is what we would call secure. And then the other three are what we call insecure attachment styles. It's all based on kind of relationship fears, relationship anxieties, not knowing how to manage them in ways that are healthy. So some people manage those that relationship stuff with an anxious attachment, meaning they're trying to close the distance. They're trying to fix the problems. They're trying to have more closeness, more togetherness. They're wanting to repair their yucky feelings with moving toward. And then the other is avoidant. They kind of deal with their emotional and relationship angst with distancing, trying to just kind of gloss over the problem, not talk about it, just kind of say what you want to hear with no real intention of following through with that. And neither is better than the other, right? It's just a different way of, of dealing with your feelings in a way that doesn't really work for you or the relationship or your partner. And then we have the disorganized attachment, which is usually related to more trauma, that the behaviors are going to be more intense, more unpredictable. And all three of those are going to lead to negative cycles because, again, what creates the negative cycles is just not knowing how to deal with your feelings. So uh, you had another question after that, and what was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so why are we often drawn to people who have a different attachment style from us or people who might not be well-suited to meeting our specific attachment needs? Yeah. So there's a few different reasons that I come across. Um, and sometimes it's a combination. Some people, you know, really kind of buy into this more kind of philosophical, spiritual idea that we're all seeking to resolve our wounds. And so we find someone that's going to help us resolve those wounds. And I think there's some truth to that. And then there's some more kind of practical reasons. One is if you don't know what a healthy relationship is because you've never felt it or experienced it growing up, you didn't know what emotional support felt like. You don't know how to kind of sit with your own feelings and help yourself in those places. You just won't have any clue how to seek that and, and so out from someone else. You don't know what it feels like. You don't know how to provide emotional support. And so that's going to kind of 
put you in a position where you're more vulnerable to being in a relationship with someone who has an insecure attachment. On top of that, a lot of people who are insecurely attached, you know, they're insecure. So they, they don't necessarily feel comfortable with people who are healthy. They feel like, oh, I'm going to be judged or I'm not, you know, just something doesn't feel familiar about it. And we just tend to kind of shy away when we're not acting consciously. We tend to shy away from anything that doesn't feel familiar um, because things that don't feel familiar can actually feel threatening, even really good things. And then the other reason is, you know, a lot of times avoidant people with an avoidant attachment, they're not at all in touch with their emotions. So they seek out someone with an anxious attachment subconsciously because that person with the anxious attachment is like overwhelmed with their emotions. So it kind of balances them out. I mean, it kind of gives that avoidant, it takes the responsibility off of them to have to learn to deal with their own stuff. And it gives them a sense of emotional aliveness, kind of a second best. Now, when that emotional aliveness starts to show up in negative cycles, then it starts to kind of be a problem. And, you know, it can still be a strength in the relationship. A lot of people with avoidant attachments are really attracted to their anxiously attached partner because of their passion and aliveness, right? So we just want to balance it out. And then on the other side of the coin, the anxious partner can be attached to avoidant partners because they sense that emotional stability. A lot of people with avoidant attachment come across as very emotionally stable because they're not externalizing their emotions. So you're not seeing a lot of you know emotional shifts and tend to do really well in life and have a lot of just kind of baseline stability because that's what keeps them from having to be, you know, have their stuff flare up. And really what it is though, is, is it crosses the line into emotional unavailability. And so once that gets in these negative cycles and the stability is no longer fun and, and safe, even though the strengths are there, like I said, but then it, it starts to create problems that they didn't really anticipate from the get go. Cause they don't have the words for these things. Yeah. In relationships where you have these negative cycles, it's common for people to think of their partner as the enemy, you know, and to paint their partner as the bad person for either being emotionally unavailable or for being too needy or codependent. And so we tend to put all of the blame on the other person. But in your book, as you talk about it, we need to start seeing the negative cycle as the enemy, not the partner, because you're going to find yourself stuck in this bad place, right? If you're just painting your partner as the enemy here. Absolutely. I mean, that's really, you know, um, when I work with couples, the kind of work that I do, which is emotionally focused therapy for couples, we call this buying the reframe. And the reframe is we're really not enemies of each other. It's this pattern of communication and we're both contributing to it equally, but in different ways uh, because it does take two to keep a negative cycle going. It only takes one to get out of that, you know, in a moment, just somehow shifted, interrupted, whatever. And so until a couple is able to buy that reframe, they will not heal because you can't have a relationship work if you truly see your partner as the enemy. And some couples can't buy that reframe because they really have had so much trauma. You know, there's a, there's some good reasons for that couple that that just isn't going to work for them. But I think the vast majority of, of couples, you know, that reframe is appropriate for them and they can get to a point where they can buy into this idea. And once you can buy into that idea, then 
everybody can start to feel safer and start to shift and things start to get a lot better. But it's, it's almost like that's the biggest hurdle is that shift in mindset. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I understand how it can be a hard thing for people because you have to acknowledge your own role in contributing to the conflict and to the negative cycle. But to the extent that you just place all the blame on your partner all the time, it's going to make it impossible to move past it and to resolve the underlying issues. That also goes for blaming yourself all the time. You know, there's a difference between taking responsibility for your part and blaming yourself. And so it's, it's the blame, whatever direction it's going, that's the real problem. Yeah, that's such an important point. You know, we don't want to blame ourselves all the time. We don't want to blame our partners all the time. We need to recognize that the truth, as it usually is the case, is somewhere in the middle. Now, following a negative cycle, there's often this paradoxical thing where people temporarily feel closer to their partner. You know, they haven't resolved the underlying issue. They just kind of buried it under the rug. But maybe they had great makeup sex and now they feel extra close. So in negative cycles, there's often this pendulum where you go from one extreme to another. So why does that happen? That's a great question. I appreciate you asking that. I've never had that asked to me before. Um, the reason for that is because negative cycles tap into vulnerability. They tap into our fears. They tap into our griefs. They tap into our insecurities and, and all of that deeper stuff that we go around sort of keeping a lid on or trying to act out to kind of keep it at bay. And what is the most bonding thing in a relationship? Vulnerabilities, right? And so what happens is couples who just don't know how to be vulnerable with each other in a really healthy way, and who are having really kind of core emotional intimacy problems, even if they don't really recognize it, or even physical intimacy problems, the only time they get down to that vulnerability is when they fight. So fighting starts to become a second best option for intimacy. Nobody's really doing this on purpose. You know, it's just, again, it's, it's sort of the nervous system just trying desperately to get the needs met. And so what happens is, is this vulnerability gets tapped into and they somehow can connect, you know, maybe the fight goes on and on in their enemies, but then it kind of shifts into this place where now all of a sudden I feel this sense of loss and we're disconnected and that hurts and we start reaching for each other and it just feels so much safer when we come back from that disconnection. And then the bond is really big and we have this great sex or we go out to dinner or we give flowers or whatever. And the problem with that is that we don't want couples to have to rely on fighting and harming each other to get to that place of connection. And I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with the makeup phase. I mean, all couples are going to fight and it is an important part of a relationship to come back together. It's when the coming back together is combined with re no real healing or resolution or fights that actually are really damaging. Yeah. And I think we all know couples who seem to fight all the time, but those couples who do that often have those very intense, passionate relationships. And it may be because the fighting leads to this temporary feeling of closeness that creates a lot of passion and intimacy and, and so forth. And I think that's probably why a lot of people say makeup sex is the best sex, right? Because for some people, it's following that big fight and it's getting that closeness that they might not otherwise be getting in the relationship. It's like the first time over and over and over again. Yeah. 
Now, I have one more question for you about negative cycles that I think is really important, which is how do you know the difference between when you're in a relationship where there's a negative cycle versus you're in an abusive relationship? These are two very different things. So how do you know the difference between them? If there's a real power imbalance and one person is you know, really in control more than the other, they are financially in control or physically abusive, you know, there's one person is, is afraid, their emotional fears are more intense than what we would consider normal, normal insecure attachment. You know, those are some really good signs that this relationship is abusive. If you combine that with the person not taking responsibility, which is not recognizing that this is a problem and not working on their side of the cycle, and, and sometimes there are some twists to that because not working on your side of the cycle doesn't necessarily mean it's abusive, but you know it does at the end of the day take two people to be committed to shifting and changing. Um, one person can get the ball rolling on that, but that might not be considered an abusive relationship, but it's certainly considered a stuck relationship, but it is abusive. You know, if you're at the, on the other end of pretty big, extreme verbal abuse and nothing you're doing is able to kind of change that, you know, that's abuse. It's, it, there is kind of a fine line. You know, sometimes it does take a professional to be able to say, this is the difference between a negative cycle and one that's actually a major power imbalance or, or any kind of imbalance that can't really be worked on without some higher level interventions or even splitting up. Yeah. And for anyone who might not be sure whether they're in an abusive relationship or not, that is an important point to bring in a professional to consult with someone else to get an outside perspective, because sometimes people end up in abusive relationships and don't recognize it. And we sometimes need that outside input or perspective to help us recognize what a healthy relationship is, what an abusive relationship is, so that we can exit situations that aren't appropriate or healthy for us. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if, if someone grows up in an environment where it is emotionally abusive or verbally abusive or even physically abusive, it is hard to recognize what's normal, what's healthy. You know, again, so much of us are drawn just to what we know. And sometimes what we know isn't healthy and we just don't know that. Yeah, so true. Thank you for all of this amazing information, Julie. I am so looking forward to our next conversation where we're going to dive into practical tips on how to break these negative cycles in relationships. Great. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Julie. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Absolutely. So my kind of hub is my Instagram account at the secure relationship. Be sure to look for the blue check. There are imposter accounts. You can find a lot of information. I have a start here highlight, which um, will kind of take you through all the most important posts, give you an idea of attachment theory and negative cycles and what, you know, I have to offer. There are tons of tips, tools, scripts on the account, just like in the book. And if you're looking for, you know, help, professional help, I have a staff of therapists slash relationship coaches that work all over the world uh, doing this, the same type of work that I do. The book is available just really everywhere. I mean, every, all the Amazons and all the different countries, it's multiple languages and uh, you can't not find the book if you <laughs> just look for Secure Love by Julie Bonanno. And it's audiobook, ebook, hardcover. 
And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time, Julie. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.